Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome, everyone, to the ABI Wellness Live webinar addressing COVID brain fog, an innovative approach. This webinar is brought to you by ABI Wellness and BEARS, which is a platform designed to support better outcomes in brain injury recovery. For more information, please visit the ABI Wellness website at abiwellness.com. There'll be a live Q&A at the end of the presentation, so please feel free to type in any questions you might have in the Q&A section on the bottom of the webinar page. My name is Michelle and I am the Customer Success Specialist at ABI Wellness. I am a passionate advocate for accessibility to evidence-based programs, which helps brain injury survivors improve cognitive function. This passion and commitment is what brought me to ABI Wellness. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to be with us here today. We're really excited to have two special guests here with the ABI team. Joining us in the conversation is Dr. Cam Clark, neuropsychologist and founder of Sharp Thinking, and Dr. Dave Petrino, Director of Rehabilitation and Innovation at Mount Sinai. Welcome both of you, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. From the ABI Wellness team, we have Sean Porter, neuroscientist and COO, and Mr. Mark Watson, CEO and founder of ABI Wellness. I'm gonna hand this over to Mark and I'll be back at the end of the presentation for the Q&A session. Mark, the floor is yours. Great, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks everybody for taking the time to join us today for this webinar. Uh, it's an important uh, topic and you know, I feel um, uh, fortunate to be, able to, be able to be able to be a part of uh, sharing some knowledge that may be useful um, to help people that might be, you know, kind of on the provider side but also individuals that might be um, struggling, um, uh, trying to better understand how to approach this, this brain fog that can be persisting in, in some segment of more that long hauler population. Um, when we look at COVID-19, uh, it really is kind of everywhere uh, around us. It's, it's really shifted um, our world uh, for, the, for the past year. Um, these are just some of the stats that we're seeing in front of us um, and in this, we're going to really focus a little bit on, on the brain fog uh, symptom um, and, and this long hauler population that is quite um, problematic. And uh, some of the symptoms that are being seen here are, you know, that we're going to be talking a little bit about are, are fatigue, uh, you know, uh, slow thinking, uh, some of the confusion, uh, challenges around, you know, some of the word finding and just uh, in general, um, um, you know, challenges with some of those higher order cognitive functions. Um, as Michelle mentioned, my name is Mark Watson and I am one of the co-founders of, of ABI Wellness, which is a, a platform um, that's designed to help um, kind of rehabilitation uh, with a focus on cognition, aligning you know, some of the best of evidence-based practice into one platform. And uh, like I said, this, this today is kind of brought to us by BEARS, the Brain Enhanced and Recovery System. Um, what do we see uh, again with ABI Wellness is, you know, we focus on aligning uh, rehabilitation into sort of one, one kind of platform. Again, our focus is more on kind of the, the primary kind of brain injury population, you know, the MTI um, concussion, a severe uh, traumatic brain injury inclusive of, of the stroke population and really trying to align that care model in a way that can help people live more independent and, and a higher quality of life, inclusive of providers. Let's not forget the providers too. <laughs> um, what I would like to do here, just to frame a little bit, is I um, we're gonna talk a little bit about um, some of the work that, that our organization has been involved with in partnership uh, with the with the BrainX organization, in in studying um, uh, and researching, um, you know, challenges in executive functioning and some brain fog in uh, kind of the MTBI uh, population. Just for context, 
um, so that we can understand. And I'm just going to pass it over to our Director of Research, Sean Porter, um, to walk through some of these data. Uh, thanks, Mark, for, the, for, for that. Um, so as, as Mark mentioned, you know, COVID-19 is new, uh, but brain fog is definitely not. And so uh, following brain injury, whether it's concussion, uh, traumatic brain injury, stroke, uh, once you enter into the chronic stage of recovery, uh, there are a lot of individuals who suffer very similar symptoms as uh, brain fog. So the forgetfulness, the difficulty concentrating, the high levels of fatigue. And so ABI Wellness has been working for years looking to address this uh, and, uh, sorry, to address these uh, higher order cognitive functions and really focused on improving the quality of life. And so we began by looking at research. And so we completed a couple of studies with the University of British Columbia and where we found following our intervention, uh, we saw significant improvements in uh, some brain imaging as well as neuropsychological measures. In particular, we found changes in fluid, uh, fluid cognition, uh, which is uh, reflects an individual's capacity to process, integrate information, act and solve novel problems, which in, with everything we're seeing with COVID-19 is very similar. And following that up, we really did a second study to see, you know, would, if we brought in a lot of the best of evidence, so beyond just this cognitive training program that's particular to ABI wellness. Um, so I'm talking about exercise, mindfulness, and uh, holistic tracking the entire process, what kind of an impact would that have? And once again, we found very similar uh, changes to uh, cognition, uh, brain connectivity, and then significant improvements of mental health as well. So anxiety and depression, which I think is spiking. Uh, I think we're seeing it spiking all over the world right now. So uh, all very positive. And so while this is not COVID-19, uh, it is very similar in how it presents and impacts people's quality of life. And so here at ABI Wellness, we're we're committed to helping to improve quality of life across uh, individuals. And I think we believe that this is something that could help this very large population of people struggling after having COVID. So once, uh, so those were our two research projects with the University of British Columbia, but we've been running clinically for a couple of years now. And one of our main focus as I mentioned, was quality of life. And so we've embedded the TBI QOL uh, de developed by David Tulski and his team uh, into our program. And it looks at five different domains of health. So global health, physical health, emotional health, cognitive health, and social health. And we were looking to see how does this program impact quality of life, not just cognition, not just particular neuropsychological scores, but overall, quality of life. And what we see is that following our intervention, you know, uh, independent of the type of injury, we're seeing significant improvements across the various domains of health. Um, in particular, we were very excited to see this improvement in emotional and cognitive health, as that's our primary focus, but seeing improvements across the board is fantastic. And based off of the metric that we used, uh, you know, the change scores are clinically meaningful, which is the most important. Great, thanks, Sean. Um, so again, the Bears platform. We just want to be clear uh, in understanding is is really used definitely more. It, a lot of our roots are actually on the cognitive side or from education, um, and and actually it was better understanding how a behavioral intervention like uh, something that is a very powerful tool developed by Barbara Smith Young called called Brainx uh, can actually change behavior. Uh, and and address some symptoms that that are are brain fog related. And I personally have been involved in this kind of work, working with students aging from age five to people in their 80s, and inclusive of brain injury. And I can remember initially having conversations with uh, mentors of mine about whether this kind of work could actually apply to helping people with brain injury. I didn't really understand. Um, and when we look at the, the BEARS, the Brain Enhanced and Recovery System platform, the idea is to, make, to take something that uh, is based in, in, in research and evidence and then apply uh, logic and an algorithm to really optimize and extend care. 
it, this is also, of course, this platform, it, it's cloud-based cloud and is inclusive of assessment, which I think is very important as we think about COVID as well. And, I, and I'm excited to have Cam and Dave and really want to turn it over to them shortly um, to talk about, um, you, know, you know, what we're noticing behaviorally, um, but also what's kind of um, challenging around assessment, um, but also um, why in some instances there is a reason um, for some level of optimism in some cases, at least on the research side, to seek to better understand um, what might be going on here and how we could consider how to address some of these different uh, challenges that we're currently faced with. Um, you know, Dave and, and, and Cam and I were just, we were just talking before and we're kind of going, well, are we talking about, you know, um, long haulers due to COVID uh, with brain fog or brain fog in general? And I think brain fog is really generalized for so many of us right now, um, being overwhelmed um, with this constant topic in front of us. And that's why, you know, someone who I've got to know over the years um, is Dr. Cam Clark, who's a clinical neuropsychologist and the founder of sharpthinking.org. Um, um, Cam is uh, very passionate about uh, psychology, um, about the role of mindset and, and the role of um, that uh, psychology and neuropsychology can play in improving one's quality of life. So I feel like Super, super privileged to have Cam here with us today to share some of his insights around this topic. Cam, I, I turn it over to you. For sure, thanks, Mark. Um, well, so first of all, I just wanna thank Mark and the ABI Wellness team for hosting uh, this webinar. Uh, I always think it's refreshing to see the initiative in uh, directly addressing uh, the problems that people are affecting um, so many of us today. Uh, so it's a pleasure to speak with you all. So I wanted to start, um, well, first of all, by asking Mark where he got that, that picture of that young looking guy from the before times, by the way, thanks for that. Um, but I wanted to start by addressing briefly the uh, scientific literature regarding what we know about the cognitive and neuropsychological consequences of COVID-19 infection. And then I wanna stop talking about it uh, because in a way, uh, the specific neuropsychological consequences of COVID-19 infection um, don't matter. And why they don't matter is gonna be the focus of uh, a lot of what I have to say today. Um, so as you might expect, the data regarding uh, the specific neuropsychological or we can say cognitive effects of COVID-19 infection um, are still relatively unknown. Um, though there are certainly rigorous studies in the works and uh, uh, results from those will be reported in the months and the years to come. Um, from what I can tell from the literature though at this point is that what we do know is that uh, previous similar respiratory disease outbreaks uh, like SARS uh, version one and MERS uh, were associated with high rates of what are called subjective cognitive complaints, right? So when people have um, subjective or they feel like there's difficulties uh, with their thinking abilities, uh, whether those pan out in neuropsychological or cognitive testing or not. Um, so those previous um, epidemics and pandemics were associated with subjective cognitive complaints, uh, cases of mental status change, um, as well as other acute and chronic neurological symptoms. Um, adi additionally, it might not be a surprise given what we've known from the past year, uh, there's significant rates of mental health issues documented amongst patients, but also providers and non-infected individuals living under uh, quarantine during that time. So no surprises there given what we've seen. Um, so the thinking is that COVID-19 will be similar to SARS and MERS in this respect. So cognitive dysfunction will be common, but not an inevitable consequence of COVID-19 infection and rates of distress in the general population will be high due to the measures taken to stop the spread, including lockdowns and the restrictions on traditional, traditional social gathering uh, that we've seen. So the neuropsychological effects appear to be variable, um, though memory complaints are especially common. Uh, it might not be a surprise either. Um, but as I was mentioning, in a way, these effects don't matter. I don't mean that to invalidate their effect. I don't mean that to say that the effect isn't large or that for some people it could be devastating. But today I wanna convince you that they don't matter because they're out of your control. What happens to your brain physically after you get COVID-19 is not something that you can control. And what I wanna focus on today is what we can control. 
And I wanna focus on that by posing a few specific questions to you to sort of guide um, our conversation about it. So first, um, let's think about what we can control. Um, in the realm of uh, cognitive dysfunction and with memory in particular being one of the most common elements of what we might call brain fog, whether it's related to COVID-19 or not, I wanna briefly mention the difference between attention and memory. Um, so memory is a three-step process, right? So very simply, we can think of memory as requiring three different steps. Number one, information has to make it into storage, right? Has to make it into your brain. Step two, that information has to be uh, stored by your brain. And then step three, that information has to be retrieved from your brain. So the interesting thing to note here is that a breakdown in any one of those three stages causes a failure in memory, right? So if information doesn't make it into memory, it's not really um, a problem of memory in the first place. Um, it's a problem of attention, right? So my favorite story about this, not related to COVID. Um, so I run a course on memory and aging. And often people will ask me things like, well, when I'm on the phone, I can't seem to remember the dates and times that are uh, posed to me for um, a birthday party or now it would be a Zoom call for sure, right? Um, and so in conversation with this person, I just had said, well, what are you doing when you're on the phone with these people? And she said, well, oh, I'm doing a crossword, right? And so that's a good example of information not making it into memory in the first place. Right? And so really keeping um, that distinction clear between memory. So is it really a problem of memory that you're having because of COVID and the stresses of lockdown? Or is it possible that it could be um, a problem with attention where that information never made it into uh, the storage portion of memory in the first place, right? Um, okay, so moving on from that, um, what I wanna focus on today is if we can control a situation, right? If we can avoid getting something like COVID-19, if we can solve any problem that comes up in our life, uh, by all means do it, right? If, if there's a solution available, solve it, solve the problem. Um, but what if we can't solve the problem? And I think that's relevant here because this type of brain fog, these subjective cognitive complaints that people describe, whether they've had COVID or not, or whether it's just a stressful period in their life, is a situation where you very much feel like you have no control over the situation. You can't just make it go away, right? So if you happen to find yourself in the unenviable but all too common situation of not being able to control what's happened to you, I propose to you today that there's a three-step process that can help. Um, I am going to warn you, though, that um, like some of the best insights in psychology, uh, it's deceptively simple, uh, but its power in reducing your suffering is hard to overstate. I want to walk you through it now. So first, in this three-step process, is notice it, right? Um, so the guiding question I have for you here is, what are you paying attention to? So we can choose in every moment to pay attention to the past and agonize over a yesterday where we didn't do something that we should have or where we did something that we shouldn't have. Or we can choose to pay attention to the future and worry about a tomorrow with too little opportunity or too much difficulty or not enough resources to meet the challenge or the challenges that we face. Or ideally, we can choose to pay attention to the present moment or simply what is happening here and now. Um, favorites, uh, early psychologist and philosopher William James famously noted, my experience is what I agreed to attend to. And more recently, uh, author and philosopher Sam Harris, may be familiar to some of you, uh, goes as far as to say, how we pay attention to the present moment largely determines the character of, character of our experience and therefore the quality of our lives. So take a moment right now and think about what are you feeling right now? What are you noticing in your experience right now? Is it a little bit of anxiety? Is it, are you thinking I'm in another webinar but I'm really checking my email? Oh, I should really respond to this email, right? There's a lot of things that are happening just outside of our awareness that we can draw our awareness to if we choose to. So for example, your feet are touching something right now. What are they touching? That wasn't unavailable to you. It's just not something that you were attending to at the moment. That same technique can be used uh, for things like depression and anxiety, 
um, or things that come up more commonly in psychological um, life day to day. So second, um, second part of the three-part process here is sit with it. And the question here is what happens when you stop trying to change your experience and just experience it? So often people find that sitting with discomfort without trying to change it or judge it as good or bad, just to take it as it comes, has the effect of removing the emotional power or pull that that discomfort originally had. Um, and the same, by the way, for cognitive slips and inefficiencies, right? Um, so if you notice that you're not able to quickly come up with the word that you were thinking of, if you notice that you're not able to remember the name of someone that you think you should be able to remember, what is it just to have that experience rather than to immediately label it as bad and then think about what the consequences mean for yourself right now and into the future? Um, so there's a story, I was actually talking to, to Mark about this just the other day, um, I quite like it. There's this idea of if you could have uh, all of psychological wisdom boiled down into one sentence, right? And all you could do if you had to transmit this sentence to the next generation, this is all you could push forward, what would it be? And um, a proposal that I had recently heard was, you are not your next thought. And that's relevant here to stopping trying to put an interpretation on something as either good or bad in the moment. You do not have to be the next thought that pops into your head. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be bad. It can be anxious and anxiety can come and go. Um, okay, step three, finally, put it in perspective, right? Or the question here is, what will you decide to make of your hardship in the grander narrative arc of your life. And this is something that you do have control over, okay? Um, favorite story here, I'll share it with you briefly. So you may have heard uh, a version of this um, in the past. There's an ancient Chinese folktale that tells of a farmer who has a prized horse. And one day that horse runs away and his neighbors come to gather and, and commiserate his loss and express their sympathies for his terrible luck at his horse running away. And the farmer commented, well, is it good luck? Is it bad luck? It's too soon to tell. And the neighbors leave and they're somewhat puzzled. They're just thinking, well, obviously it's bad luck. His, his horse ran away and he loved that horse. Several weeks later, the prized horse comes back to the farm and brought with it a dozen wild horses. The neighbors all gather again and they congratulate him on his, on his fantastic windfall. The farmer again responds with doubt and he says, well, is it good luck? Is it bad luck? Well, it's just too soon to tell. And the neighbors leave again and they're just thinking like, what is going on? They're just so confused. Like, obviously this is a good thing that happened. He brought all the, all the horses. Several weeks later, uh, one of the wild horses uh, who the farmer's son had been working to tame falls on the sun and breaks one of his legs. And yet now you can kind of see the pattern. All the neighbors come by and say, oh, you loved your son and the son was taming the horse. And now your son has a broken leg and we're so sorry for your bad luck. Well, is it bad luck? Is it good luck? Well, it's too soon to tell. Several weeks later, a war breaks out in the area. Uh, the local warlords gather every able-bodied man and his son is left out of the war. Many of the sons of the village die and his son doesn't because he had the broken leg. And so the story goes on and on and on like this, but the point is at every twist and turn of fate, it's too soon to tell whether it's good luck or bad luck. And you get to decide basically right now, the story is, COVID-19 is one of these things. The stresses that COVID-19 has brought to your life is a hardship. Is it good luck? Is it bad luck? And in a, lot, in a lot of ways, I invite you to consider that it really is too soon to tell. And that choice of reframing the narrative of what this means for you is within your power to control and can work its way down into things like reducing anxiety such that you're able to remember things better and have fewer subjective cognitive complaints. And I know that's a simplistic picture, um, but this brief uh, presentation is an invitation for you to consider the ways in which you do have a little bit of control over your psychological well-being uh, day by day. So the take-home messages that I would have for you is that you can't control COVID. Um, or the effects that it will have on your brain. Uh, but you do control, one, what you decide to pay attention to, two, how you react to what you find when you focus your attention, 
And three, what meaning you make of those things in your life. And with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Mark or Dave. Um, Cam, thank you. Thank you. I always learn something uh, when I listen to you speak and challenge my thinking. So um, uh, thank you very uh, much for that. And I'm, I'm not my next thought. <laughs> um, no, I really appreciate you. And I'm, I'm grateful for our friendship and collaboration. Um, I, I, we will t hold questions to the end and just a reminder that this is being recorded. Um, I don't know if that was covered in the initial intro, but it is being recorded uh, as some people are unable to make it. Uh, our next presenter is Dr. Dave Petruno, who I've known for, I think, a couple of years now. Um, he, Dave, what I really appreciate about Dave is he, he is definitely a, a researcher. He's a very bright mind, uh, but he's about translating science into practice. And that's kind of what his lab is really focused on at Mount Sinai um, Hospital in, in, in New York. And I remember first meeting Dave, uh, I think it was in, it was in New York, I get, I get the different boroughs kind of mixed up, but I think it was in Harlem near their office and just talking about inquiry and a quest to better understand outcomes. And it's something that is all throughout the work that he does in helping people to, to live a better quality of life. So I really want to turn it over to Dave. He's been at, at, at kind of the epicenter of a lot of COVID um, in, in New York City and has some really keen insights to share with us today. Thanks so much for the generous introduction mark and and like cam i'm going to join uh i'm going to thank you for uh, <laughs> uh making me look really young and with hair um, <laughs> um that was a, that photo was taken a long time ago so uh <laughs> anyway um so uh cam thank you so much that was a really great um sort of introduction to the concept of brain fog globally and some of the things that can be done to, to help people who are experiencing it. I also think that um, there, there was a really great um, article in the Atlantic a couple of days ago about just how all of us are struggling um, with sort of late stage pandemic, you know, um, cognitive decline as a result of just everything that we've all been through. And I think the lessons that you really put out there are, are for all of us to to take on board and um, and keep pushing toward. Um, I'm going to narrow the focus into uh, COVID-related brain fog and some of the things that we're seeing and some of the things that we're challenging. I wanted to give a bit of a, a quick origin as to uh, how this all started from our perspective and what we started seeing. Um, so in March 2020, you know, around this time uh, last year, in fact. Um, we, uh, you know, we were in absolute crisis. So what, what you're seeing here on the screen is actually uh, this beautiful large atrium of Mount Sinai that is usually just open space, massive ceilings and wonderful. And it had all been turned into temporary ICU bedding. Um, it was kind of a jarring thing to wander into and see. This is Central Park. Uh, outside of the Mount Sinai Hospital in, in Harlem, where um, Mark and I first met, just being turned into triage tenting. Um, we were getting hit very hard by COVID. We had to quickly adapt to create um, strategies to manage the acute symptoms of, of COVID-19. And um, uh, my role at Mount Sinai is, is Director of Rehab Innovation. So it's, it's my job typically to bring on new technologies and develop new ways of treating things and, and, um, and, and rehabilitating conditions. So over the course of around 48 hours, we actually developed a pretty simple app-based system that would allow us to track daily symptoms of COVID patients. The, the protocol was super simple. We just every day we asked a few questions about symptoms we got them to give us a little bit of um, biometric data, what's their blood oxygenation doing, um, blood pressure, if that was an issue, heart rate, temperature, et cetera, et cetera. And if anything, if anything went wrong, someone would jump in immediately and triage the patient and make sure they got the care they needed. And, uh, and otherwise we would just sort of ride them out for a month, make sure that they were doing okay. And if at the end of a month they were, they were great, we would discharge them from the program if they were still feeling some after effects, we would keep it going. Um, but that was, in a nutshell, it, that was the system. It was just making sure that everyone who got diagnosed with COVID or was exp experiencing symptoms consistent with COVID 
could get access to a medical professional who would keep an eye on them and make sure they didn't rapidly deteriorate. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because, uh, you know, over the course of um, three months, four months in, in that peak time in New York, we were managing thousands of cases of acute COVID through this app. And what started to happen was once we hit around May, our, some of our earliest patients were still experiencing symptoms, but they were new symptoms. So it wasn't the same old uh, shortness of breath and cough and fever and you know all of the things that we've come to know about COVID. The, these were new symptoms. And, um, and, and we started to notice that a lot of people were having persistent symptoms. Now, in some cases, these persistent symptoms were um, uh, these persistent symptoms were related to uh, a really severe infection, and we could track what was going on. So they would come to us and they would say, "Hey, I'm having shortness of breath." We'd scan their lungs and and we would see lung damage. Okay, that we know what to do with that. That's pulmonary rehab. We'd scan their chest and we'd see heart damage. Okay, cardiac rehab. No worries other organ systems, sometimes kidneys would be bothered, you know, sometimes other things. And in each case, we would sort of just put them in the right box and make sure that they got the care they needed. But then there was this 10 to 15% of cases that we didn't really know what was going on. They were, they were displaying a constellation of symptoms. Um, we started calling it post-acute COVID syndrome. Um, and we formed together a task force of individuals that I thought would be um, appropriate for managing uh, uh, this this level of symptoms, and we started to really noodle on on the cases that we were seeing. Now, um, at a quick glance, now I really want to point out when we talk demographics, and I you know I know that 1,200 people sounds like a lot, especially in clinical trials and things. But when we talk demographics, you really want to see 50,000 before you really say this is what a condition looks like. But you know we started to see a few things that were of note, which, you know, a majority female cases, median age was uh, 42. Um, uh, over 90% of our cases came to us from non-severe infection. And what I mean by non-severe to be real clear is uh, individuals that did not require hospitalization. Um, so I don't mean to say that they didn't get very, very unwell, but I do mean to say that they didn't get admitted to the hospital because of their symptoms. Um, the other sort of scary piece of this was previously fit and healthy, no really consistent things in the medical history. Um, and I hate BMI as a metric, but in terms of getting a, a picture of things in your head, average BMI. So we're not, we're not talking about people who were overweight or obese or, um, or morbidly obese or in the other direction, underweight. Um, the, these people sort of sat around the, the average BMI range. Um, so it was, it was a very, um, it was what we were told not to expect were going to be the, the problem in acute COVID. So um, it, it was a, you know, a very odd case. And so we started thinking, okay, well, what's going on in terms of the symptoms that are being reported? And um, people were reporting all of these symptoms that are very consistent with a condition that we will often call uh, dysautonomia. Now, dysautonomia is actually a term, an umbrella term that we use to describe many different syndromes. Um, and so I wanna be clear that although many of the things that we're seeing look a lot like many other syndromes, not just dysautonomia related syndromes, but you'll hear people talk about um, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, you'll hear people talk about um, all sorts of autoimmune conditions. Um, we're being really careful in what, what we're trying to classify th this condition as because um, we don't, we really don't want to put it out there and misdiagnose people with an existing condition when what we very well could be seeing is an entirely novel post-viral syndrome. And um, similar to CAM, you know, much of that doesn't matter for right now, other than just not labeling people with an incorrect diagnosis. Um, and so, but, but we noted it and we were thinking about it and we started to map out some of the symptoms. And as you can see, there's, there's a lot of symptoms going on, but um, we started to sort of look at how common each of the symptoms was. As you can see, exercise intolerance is a big one. 
Um, you'll also see that concentration difficulties, cognitive difficulties, people were discussing brain fog, at, you know, coming to us and saying they had brain fog. There's a whole range of really debilitating symptoms going on here that we had to sort of start to tease out and manage. Um, as we, we moved into, uh, you know, yet another study where we did a deeper dive on patients and looked at their acute symptoms versus their persistent symptoms. Again, you're gonna see issues with concentration, cognition, memory, really hitting right up the top. Um, uh, and so it's a really common story that we're seeing here of cognition being affected, which is very, very consistent again with dysautonomia-like syndrome. So um, at this point, we pulled together a, a team of individuals and we, we have started to create a, a training program to really help us manage symptoms. And uh, we've, we've managed around 800 cases of post-acute COVID syndrome at this stage. And um, although progress is glacially slow, I will, I will say that, uh, people are improving across the spectrum, which is really encouraging to see. Um, now, the interve intervention that we're working on, and I really enjoyed Cam's share because much of the initial work that we're doing with neuropsychologists around the cognitive issues is really around that initial, you know, labeling what is what you're going through, taking a moment to sit with it, taking a moment to process it, giving yourself permission to sort of move past it and understand that this is this is a known problem with the condition, and it's something that we're we're going to get you on on track to getting uh, getting better with the reconditioning protocol that we've been we've been designing um, we've followed a lot of really great research in the past on um, on uh, autonomic reconditioning protocols we've had to alter ours a lot to fit into the level of debilitation and the level of exercise intolerance that we're seeing in patients but once we made that appropriate course correction and adjustment we've seen people are able to tolerate the exercise we pair it with breath work uh, to assist them with a lot of their, um, their symptoms. And what we're seeing across the board is that as function improves, um, the cognitive symptoms are also starting to, um, uh, to, to improve as well, which is actually very well reported in the dysautonomia literature when we treat for things like POTS and other, other dysautonomia syndromes where brain fog and cog uh, cognition issues are a part of it. We often see that cognition resolves as the other functional symptoms resolve and as you get the autonomic nervous system back on track and not taking up a lot of cognitive resources to sort of, you know, manage um, uh, a uh, disordered autonomic nervous system. So, um, so at that point, I'm going to pause. Uh, well, what I'm going to say is, you know, as we continue to move forward, one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to work with ABI Wellness to see what we can do to accelerate improvement in some of the cognition symptoms. You know, we're doing this we're doing this dance with the ABI folks where we're trying to understand, you know, how much activity is too much activity for these people because they're highly debilitated and, you know, th there is no one size fits all for this. So we're, we're really working together and we appreciate the relationship to try and be as flexible and nimble as possible as we, you know, address this, um, this syndrome that at last count, um, you know, listening to Dr. Fauci, it, we're looking at around 10 to 30% of non-severe cases of COVID, which in the United States is, is millions. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'll finish with the, the somewhat sobering statistic that, um, uh, only a handful of our patients have made it through around eight months of rehabilitation. And only after eight months of rehabilitation us are finally starting to say to us, you know, I'm still not 100%. I'm still not where I was pre-COVID, but I'm starting to feel human and, you know, and, and back to normal again. So thanks very much for the opportunity to share this information. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer some questions and have a great discussion. Thanks so much, Dave. Uh, appreciate that. Um... You know, the, both of you, Cam and Dave, really appreciate all of your wisdom and insights into this uh, extremely contemporary topic uh, that is, um, I know, worthy of a lot of time and questions. So um, 
you know, I think Michelle, are you going to uh, take take the questions uh, from from the audience? We are. We're just going to. Um, I'm just going to see if I can bring them up. Thank you. Um, so we do have a question here. Do you have any data on the base rate of these symptoms in New York City population that did not test positive for COVID during the time period to assure this isn't a reflection of isolation, deconditioning, or some yeah. other general factor not specific to COVID? Um, so that is a, a great question. Um, there is there is somewhat of a complication in um, using uh, a non non PCR well using PCR as a metric for people who did not have COVID, um, and that complication is that PCR tests were not easily available in the early months of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and um, and also they have a tremendously high false negative rate. So um, although we so many of our cohort do have a PCR negative test result. However, they when we followed World Health Organization guidelines for presumptive positive diagnosis of COVID based on symptoms, um, everybody in our cohort had presumptive po positive diagnosis of, mm -hmm. of COVID-19. So our choice has been to not turn away anyone seeking care with this constellation of symptoms simply because of a negative PCR test. Um, I want to, I, I think it is a really interesting point to explore of capturing a naive sample of, of individuals who don't think that they have COVID, don't think that they had presumptive positive symptoms and, um, and see if any, you know, anyone in the, in the sort of sphere of things are also experiencing these um, signs and symptoms. It's just something that we haven't gotten to because we've been overwhelmed with managing the clinical caseload. Mm -hmm. Thank question. you so much. We actually don't have any other questions at this time. Actually, I think there's one there that just came up, Michelle. Oh. Um, has fMRI studies um, been done on COVID-19 long haulers as related to brain network connectivity with any specific findings? Also, Dave, a great more for you. <laughs> um, so, uh, there have been a number of brain uh, fMRI um, uh, case case reports that we've been studying from um, uh, more or less neurologists who have sent their um, their Mount Sinai patients who are showing post-acute COVID syndrome long haul symptoms off to get a an MRI. Um, and so far, there are no consistent um, findings that tie together um, what we're seeing in terms of cognition um, and, um, uh, and this population of post-acute COVID syndrome patients. This is why we tend to think that is, it is being driven by autonomic nervous system dysfunction, but we still need to do a proper um, controlled trial on this, and we're actually applying to the NIH for funding to do just that um, as we speak. Perfect, thank you. Um, we do have one additional question, wondering if we run the same risk that exists with post-concussion syndrome as a diagnosis based on symptom alone. Absolutely, yeah, this is a great question and it is a great problem. Uh, uh, we, we're rapidly, you know, again, um, we, we knew about this in May. Um, we're working really, really hard to both treat uh, over a thousand patients as well as start to pull together diagnostic criteria that are objective rather than subjective. Um, and we are currently um, engaged in an immunological study, uh, working with a really phenomenal group out at Yale to um, uh, if our hypothesis is correct that this is um, that this is autonomic nervous system mediated from uh, and what we think caused the autonomic nervous system dysfunction is uh, an immune response, uh, we believe that and, and Akiko Iwasaka, who's our collaborator at Yale, we believe that there will be an autoantibody profile that is very specific to our hypothesis 
that we'll be able to track on a blood test. So that's one thing that we're looking for right now. Um, and then we're also looking for physiological biomarkers. And currently, the leading physiological biomarker is end tidal CO2 levels are significantly reduced in this population. So in uh, so far in 100% of the cases that we've seen, um, they were hypocapnic, so low um, end tidal CO2 levels. So that is, is showing up as a promising physiological biomarker of, of this condition. And we're, we're very, very concerned. Um, so Greg, thanks for the, uh, uh, you know, the, um, the, the question, because totally agree. We're, we're very concerned about this. We don't want this to be a, yet another syndrome where you just bunch together a constellation of symptoms and say, you've, you've got it. Um, we're trying to be rigorous and objective about it. Thank you so much. We do have one more question. Um, I'll try and pronounce this correctly. <laughs> so has <Okay>. anyone <laughs> checked the tilt table or postural orthostatus as a marker? <laughs> yep, uh, postural orthostasis, yes. Um, we, we have, it is not a consistent marker. Um, so it is present in some, not in others. Um, we have seen, an, uh, we've seen a further decrease in um, end tidal CO2 when we uh, get people leaning against the wall as per the NASA lean test, um, which is an interesting finding also. Um, but the, the classic postural orthostasis issues uh, are not consistently with everybody, uh, which has been, which was, we were, we were hoping that it would be uh, an easy win for us, but it wasn't, unfortunately. But great, I, I like where your head's at. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, Sean, did you want to talk a little bit about our upcoming training? Uh, yeah, I could definitely do that. So thank you again, everybody, for the questions. Uh, those, those were great. And thank you, Cam and Dave, for your perspectives and for joining us on this. Um, so I just wanted to let everyone know that's listening that we are having training coming up in April for clinics, hospitals, uh, nonprofits, uh, people who work in rehabilitation that are interested in bringing uh, the ABI Wellness and the BEARS platform into their practice. Um, if you are interested, um, it is able to be completed virtually um, and self-paced. So uh, please send us an email at info at abiwellness.com or give us a call uh, and we'd be happy to provide a demo or just more details about the training. Yeah, hey, please do. We want to hear from you, but the, not just on the clinical side, on the research side. This is about improving outcomes and lives. And, uh, you know, again, I want to acknowledge uh, Cam. Uh, good to see you. Uh, the, the power of technology, it's quite amazing. Um, and, and Dave, good to see you as well. Um, you know, thank you both for your, your keen perspectives and your, really your commitment to this work. Um, it's really, um, it's, it's wonderful to know that, um, you know, individuals like yourselves and your respective organizations are taking such an um, inquir inquiry-based approach, but not just to ask the question again, to translate it into tangible actions and outcomes. And I just, I admire both of you um, for doing the work that you do. And I look forward to continue to collaborate together. Thank you, Mark. And, oh, sorry, did you want to say something, Dave? No, we're all good. Um, yes, thank you so much, Kim and Dave. Thank you for sharing your time with us today and for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us. Thank you also, Mark and Sean, for for your expertise as well. And thank you to everybody who attended today. It's greatly appreciated. Um, if you'd like more information on the BEARS platform or to schedule a demo, please visit our website at abiwellness.com you can, and you can click on the appropriate links or alternatively, you can email me at info at abiwellness.com. You can also sign up for newsletters on our website. And remember, we have our next self-paced self virtual training coming up in April, and we'd love to have you attend. You our newly launched podcast, Brain Mastery, available on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast streaming sites. So until next time, please, everybody stay safe and healthy, and thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will send out an, uh, um, 
uh, a follow-up just so if you want to get in touch with Cam or Dave and learn a little bit more about some of their work, um, we'll make sure we have the appropriate uh, channels to reach them at uh, to learn more about how to support the work that they're currently doing um, in their respective fields and in their respective and in their respective locations. Don't forget to check back for a new Brain Mastery segment every week. Here's a sneak peek of our next thought-provoking interview. But um, to be perfectly honest, and I don't want this to go to your head too much, probably the biggest impact on my rehabilitation was meeting you. Um, like, um, like I said, when I, I, I was, um, I had given up a lot, of, I had given up pretty much. So I was designed to just getting worse and worse and not getting better, improving anyway. I was improved on declining. I was in, and um, then all of a sudden, I remember one time I was in my, in my, I was during the program, I was in my Jeep having lunch and I saw you walk by with these two ladies and I honked my horn. I said, hey, Watson Group. And you kind of smiled. Let's go talk to this guy. And you brought them over. And apparently there were two couple of nurses from GF Strong. And you were, you were working on getting your program into, into, into that facility. And, and you said to me, um, what was the, what's the um, biggest, um, the biggest gift you've got from this program. And I, and I thought about it and I said, I said, hope. And that without hope, you can't do anything. Um, you need, you need, you need a good attitude and hope to, 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 to get out of bed pretty much. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a good yeah. program. I love it. Thank you so much for listening to the Brain Mastery Podcast brought to you by ABI Wellness. Be sure to follow us on social media channels at ABI Wellness. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.